This is the Dive Bomb Squadcast, presented by Dive Bomb Industries. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Dive Bomb Squadcast. I'm your host, Asher Tolliver. Uh, after Cade, Forrest, and Kyle covered the last few months, I'm excited to be back with you guys. Today, we are going to talk about gun dogs and the off-season. And to help me with this, I am joined by our friend Kyle Fagler, owner of Guides Choice Retrievers, operating out of Burns, Wyoming. Kyle, what's up, man? How are you, Asher? Doing great, man. I'm doing good. We've uh, turned a corner a little bit here in the south. We're seeing some warmer days. I know you guys probably haven't let up yet up there, but I've uh, hit the water a few times this spring, which is awesome. And uh, looking forward to getting out to the turkey woods and uh, just enjoying some spring and summer. How about yourself? That's right. I know we're getting ready to get a bunch of dogs in here at the kennel to kick off our year and uh, couldn't be more excited about that. It's, uh, you send them home in the fall ready to watch them succeed in the field and don't really miss them until about halfway through the year. It starts feeling a little empty around here, so we're ready to get back after it. Absolutely. You know, as we approach the spring waterfowl season's all but over you know except for the guys getting after the late spring snows as they make their way north and into canada what does your schedule look like over the next several months so our schedule we start april 1st here and we'll uh we'll run until about october 1st it's kind of a comfort zone where we know we may have some april snowstorms yet but um for the most part here, we can we can get rolling with the training and hammer it out. It doesn't get too terribly hot up here. I mean, mid-90s at the hottest peak of the summer, and it don't last long. So it's a, we got great, great uh, training conditions here, and that makes it nice. So our schedule will kick off and start training every morning and work Monday through Friday, chase the test here and there. But for the most part, our, our big deal is mostly your gun dogs. So... Now at the peak of training season, how many dogs will you have there at your kennel? So the way we run our program is, is when you put a dog in training April 1st with us, that dog actually stays till October 1st. So okay. our peak actually hits right at April 1st, and we carry it all the way to the end of the end of the year. So and that's 20 dogs. Gotcha. So you're bringing some dogs in that might be on year three, whereas other dogs, you might be starting your first uh, session of training for a start right. yeah. gotcha. gotcha so before we get too far into this can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into dog training so yeah i'm uh i've guided 14 years full-time uh, guiding hunts was was my job uh all waterfowl duck and goose hunts from colorado down to texas uh i joke around with forest all the time saying that he's the one that followed me i started it and then uh he followed me so you know, it's kind of a little joke about that, but uh, I quit guiding to be a single father at the time, and uh, a gentleman asked me what I was doing for the summer, and I said, I don't know, and he said, well, do you want, do you want to train my dog for me? And he goes, I really like yours, and I had been training my own dogs, you know, guiding and whatnot, and then training in the summer, and he said, would you train a dog for me? I said, yeah, you bet, let's do it, and uh, that year, I just trained one dog, the next year, Everybody said, well, what are you doing now that you're, you're completely done guiding? What are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I said, I trained a, a guy's dog for him last year. And he said, well, uh, 
you know, people started finding out about it, and they said, well, what if we send you a dog? Well, that next summer, I had eight, nine dogs. The following summer, we built a new building, and we had 18 dogs, and we've been at 18, 20 dogs every year since then. So I never wanted to be a dog trainer. I never thought about being a dog trainer. Uh, the good Lord just kind of put this right in our lap, and we have been running with it ever since. So my background is mostly the hunting and guiding aspect of things, but here we are today. So it's it's cool because we still get to stay in the industry. We get to deal with a lot of the top-named guides in the country, in my opinion, and that makes it fun because even though I'm not out guiding, we're sending dogs to guides or serious waterfowlers and that's awesome. You know, that's, that's fun. I get to do this 300 some days a year, just like yourself. And who can beat that? Absolutely. You know, and I think that with your background as a guide and knowing the situations that you will encounter, it's a lot easier for you to put together a regimen for a dog in order to be able to succeed in those high leverage situations, as opposed to someone that might be training retrievers, but they don't have any experience with uh, the guide world. You know, they're not saying that there's anything wrong with one or the other, but if you are training a dog for high volume wing shooting and it's coming from a place that maybe has never experienced that, you know, kind of more of that solo one, two, three buddy hunt type of stuff. It's a different right. ball game. And a lot of people, they don't, they don't understand that. So obviously you being able to know the difference uh, in what a client is looking for, whether they are just looking for a dog to hunt on the weekends or a dog that's going to be hunting up and down the flyway for, six or seven months out of the year that might pick up 5,000 plus birds. There's quite a difference there. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. And, you know, when you guys call and say, Hey, can you train for us? You know, I've taken it as a great honor that I'm even being considered or looked at, you know, we, we didn't have a training background when we got started. Um, so to get calls from, you know, like Derek McDaniels or Oren Lonadier, Brady Davis, some of those kind of guys that you look up to in the waterfowl industry as serious hunters that are absolutely killers out there, you know, and they want you to train a dog for them. That's honestly an honor. That's a privilege, you know, the way that I look at it. And that's, uh, that's been awesome. Where did you guide when you were guiding? So I guided the first couple of years up in Colorado, um, I got it for Stillwater for two years and got it for another company, Woods and Water, for a few years. And I've done it Blackfoot in Texas for six years. Okay. So and in the last few years, I've kind of been tinkering around part-time helping Jeff at Front Range Guide Service. So can't just get out of it. But <laughs> I want to talk about a few dive bomb products that we had you testing out before anybody else knew about them. The adjustable dog vest, the dog bumpers, and... The bumper bomber. Let's start with the dog vest. Kyle, what do you think about the dog vest after being able to try it on retrievers of different sizes at your kennel? You know, actually, just like we talked kind of in Messenger and whatnot, I was probably the hardest person to sell on a dog vest. Um, for the listeners, we had a client have a dog that went into hypothermia. They had taken all the, per, you know, 
the proper procedures to preventing it, however it happened. But getting further into why it happened was the vest wasn't fit 100% proper. So when I first got the dog vest, I was kind of skeptic about it because I was like, no, I'll never put another vest on a dog like this dog, you know. I get close to the dogs and the client dogs that we have, their family. So when all this happened, I said, I'd never have a vest on a dog again, blah, blah, blah. I'm not doing this. So when we got the vest, I pulled it out of the box and I put it on the first dog, my daughter's dog's bank, and it fit perfect. And I'm like, okay, all right, I'm in, I'm in, I'm, I'm getting jazzed up. I'm getting excited. Just like a lot of those people were when they were first getting it that we were seeing on social media you're jacked up. You're excited. You can put this, this vest, I mean, 60 to 80 pound dogs comfortably and it fits right. And as long as it fits right, how do you beat it? Um, I know some people have said, well, is it going to hold up? You know, man, I hunted that vest pretty hard this winter. Um, and it's held up. I mean, you can't tell the difference. I mean, yeah, I've taken it on and off a lot of different dogs and put it on different dogs. So, you have your normal wear and tear, but for the guy that's going to buy it and put it on a dog and, you know, he's not adjusting it all the time, this thing is going to last forever. It's it's a great vest. And even if it doesn't, man, how do you beat a vest that fits your dog right? Sure. You know, I mean, it's better than anything else. Um, the material, everything on it, this thing is durable. I watch dogs get hung up on pits, jumping out of the pits to go pick up birds and uh just kind of snag it or whatever but you can't tell where they snagged it so that's exciting to me that's awesome the feedback is it's been really good so far you know we've pretty much advertised that as like the optimal range is somewhere in that 50 90 pound range had pictures of 45 pound boykins up to 100 pound labs some even squeezing some big 110 pound dogs which i'm not going on record to say put this vest on your 110 pound dog but i have seen pictures of people uh a little under and a little over the the recommended range you know that recommended range is for your best fit for these dogs but uh and ever honestly everything in between from you know 65 to up to 90 back down to 60 up to 75 and different chest you know sizes bigger smaller chest dogs it's been really nice our engineer tommy he's spent a lot of time on that vest and we're really excited about the product now have you gotten a chance to try the bumper bomber out yet? I know you guys use, you know, the high tech launchers in, in your line of business, but they're a pretty dang fun tool that you can really launch those bumpers with. You want to know, and Sam, this is another funny one for me, after is when, when Cody had called me and told me about this, and, uh, you know, we were discussing a lot of dog products, and I was kind of like skeptic of it, like, sure. why do we need this? We don't need this. This is. No, 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 don't do this. And without saying no, don't do this. But it was one of those deals like, no way. I got that bumper bomber, and I'm like a kid in the candy store with that thing. And even this week, my daughter, my six-year-old daughter, has been out here just chucking them. And she's getting 20, 30 yards with it. And I'm like, wow. Like, you know, I mean, the stick's taller than she is, and she's out there just busting them out. And I'm going to tell you, too, when I first got the Bumper Bomber, yeah, I had fun with it. I played with it. I'm, you know, I'm not going to deny it. I did. 
And, uh, but then I started seeing where I could incorporate that into my training program. And believe it or not, there is places for it in a training program. We see in some of the test scenarios up here, and even just for the guy that's going to go out and train a retriever, when you can take a bumper and throw it out in the middle of a lake or a reservoir or whatever, and say you throw that bumper out there at 60 yards, and you go back and you get your dog, and you run a blind retrieve as if it's a, a duck or goose that had fallen out in the middle of this lake, uh-huh. and the dog didn't see it. Now that bumper's all, you know, clear out there. Before we could throw it by hand, but you weren't getting big distance. So you throw it out there and you'd wait a minute or two and then you'd go get the dog and hope that the wind carried it away from you. Sure. So having that bumper bomber to go ahead and, you know, completely wing one out there and get it out there, go get the dog, come back and run it as a blind retrieve or just building the confidence of getting the dog to go further out into the water. Um, not every bird you kill is in 20 yards in the decoys, right? There's always that one that, that gets out there or in other scenarios you have it where, um, one kind of glides down or whatever the case may be. And so having that, that tool to get it out there, that, that right there is worth having, you know, because you're just going to give that dog confidence then. And anytime you have a confident retriever, that's something that's something that everybody wants, right? So if you can practice that, that's uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, Kate, he he got me at 79 yards the day we made that promo video, but I uh, I was at the football field on a Sunday afternoon with my kids and my wife a few weeks ago, and I was like, man, I'm going to take that thing and I'm going to beat him. I, could, I couldn't stand the fact that he had thrown one further than I did. So I sent 181. So I've got him beat right now on the non – wind aided throw you know i did throw one with a 15 mile an hour tailwind then i stepped off at over 100 yards it was like 102 or 103 but it wasn't official on a football field so i guess i'm gonna have to go up there one day and send one into orbit if we get a a tornado coming and, and a wind at my back one day Man, and we get 40 mile an hour winds up here in <laughs> like oh my gosh crazy. you guys out there in wyoming I, i'm honest to goodness i think you could send one I don't want to put a number on it, but there's somebody out there that's going to do it and they're going to send me a video one day and it's, it's going to be a long ways, you know, consistently throwing them by hand, I can throw them 40 pretty easily. Um, So like I said in that video, I don't think it's anything like earth shattering, but I, I think 30 yards can play a big difference. It might not play a big difference with a season or finish dog, but, you know, early on in the training program, I do. I think it, I think 30 yards is a big deal. And also, like I said in the video, more than anything, it's, it's just fun. You know, like you want you training, your dog is supposed to be fun. Like it shouldn't feel like, I mean, obviously for you, it's work because it's what you do for a living, but for everybody else to do it yourself type of guys, you should enjoy the experience as much as your dog. And I think this is a great tool to go out and have some fun or if you do have some buddies, make a little competition out of it and see how far you can throw it. So I, I think it's a great tool. Now, do you think there's any merit? I, personally, I thought this might be a pretty good selling point on it, and I could be completely wrong. But I felt like when I was <clears throat> slinging bumpers from my side, and I'm using this for a practical hunting scenario, I felt like when I'm slinging bumpers from my side, my dog's watching me 
throw the bumper from a low angle from my side. So he's basically keeping an eye on that bumper the whole time. And I feel like when I throw my with my bumper bomber, I'm releasing it so far behind my head because if you hold it too long, you'll spike it straight in the ground. So you're releasing it from way back. And I've noticed my dog is constantly staring at the sky looking for it whenever I release it. And now he already knows it's coming. But I think whenever you take that idea and put that into a practical hunting situation, I don't think that can be a bad thing to have your dog looking at where one, your subjects are going to be coming from and where they're going to be falling from. Right, exactly. It's no different than a gun barrel coming up. Um, you know, marking off a gun barrel or something like that. When you're throwing from the hip, you're throwing underhand. Um, and your dog, I, I, I try not to do it. Honestly, I try not to do it. And I know, like you said, we have different tactics ourselves of doing things. However, with that bumper bomber, yeah, I think you have a valid point right there. The other thing that I'll add to what you're saying, though, too, is when you get a started dog, those are fun things to go and do, right? Sure. But when you get into a seasoned dog level, you got to start having a connection with that dog and have fun. Sure. At, at finished, you need to have a relationship. It's it's damn near a marriage with that dog because you guys need to be working as a team together. Having that bumper bomber to go out and take stress off, even not realizing you're still training with it, right? But to take some of that stress off and go have fun, man, you got to do that. You got to bond. You can't just pressure, 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 pressure. You got to take pressure off. I want to take some time to talk about the different bumper colors and how to properly utilize them to get the most out of our training sessions. So let's just start with white and we'll work our way down the list. I just want to open this up for you. I just want to present the color and you explain in your program how you like to utilize these colors or how you'll utilize these colors. Okay. Yeah, let's keep going with white. So white is going to be a good uh, bumper to go out and throw marks with. Dogs have seen a uh, black and white scale, uh, gray scale, excuse me. So black and white really stand out to them. Depending on your backdrop, a white bumper is going to stand out most days. I mean, you're not going to beat that, especially, you know, and that's just throwing marks. Um, now, when you're running drills, white is going to show up on any color of grass. Um, as long as there isn't snow, but because my bumpers on my snow, it just, it, actually, I don't care how many times I try it, it just never works out the way you want. <laughs> I'll tell you that. But when you're running bumper drills, um, teaching the T, teaching you know, pattern blinds, all, all that sort of stuff, those white bumpers come in handy for that. Okay. Let's go to orange. Um, or, sorry, sorry. Were you still talking about white? Well, I was going to move over to the black and white. Okay, let's go because to black. Let's it, go to black because and the reason I want to go to the black and white is because we'll step it up into level of difficulty because each color does have a difficult level to it. So, for those guys that are just starting out, that white bumper is a general good all-around bumper, right? But with your black and white, now say you got a really bright, sunshiny day you're in Wyoming where there's not a tree to be found for miles. You can watch a dog run away for weeks, okay? When you throw a black and white bumper out here, you're going to catch it no matter what is on the horizon. Whether If you do get lucky and you have trees on the background or you don't, 
that black and white is kind of like a flasher, and the dog is going to be able to pick that up and see that and go get it. We'll throw some 300-yard marks with black and white bumpers, and dogs can pick them up, see them, and visually go pick them up, okay? Um, now going with the orange bumpers. And Real quick, before we move on, the black and white, do you think – that with that strong contrast, you use the word flasher. Do you think if somebody is throwing a long, long mark, just in general, whether it's sunny, maybe a little overcast, do you think the black and white overall is going to be a better bumper for throwing those extremely long? Oh, 100. Yeah. Yes, 100%. That contrast? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Cool. And, and what about when you're dealing with water? Water water with any of these bumpers, obviously your gray is going to be a little bit tougher on water. Um, that's going to be something more for an advanced dog with a gray on water. Just because, you know, when the dog's out there swimming, you got to think about looking at it from their visual sake. Not from your visual sake, lower down to the water level and look at it. Um, the gray is going to be a little bit harder, but with a black and white, there again, you got confidence coming. They can see that. That's sure. That's going to pop to them. Awesome. All right, let's go to orange. Okay, orange. So with orange bumpers, um, it, typically you'll see a lot of guys using orange bumpers running blinds. Just to, you know, your cold blinds, your pattern blinds. Once you've uh, gone through and taught them, you know what a pattern blind is, where they need to run to. You'll see them switch over from a black and white or a white bumper and go over to an orange bumper. Um, orange bumpers though, and a lot of people don't realize this, you can still do marking drills with it. We run a marking drill that, you know, it's only 50, 60 yards, a hundred yards, you know, away from the dog, but we'll throw orange bumpers to make that dog really learn to focus on the mark, pay attention to where the mark is going. And an orange bumper is good for that because it's, it's going to dial them in. It's going to make them look harder. Um, and that's the same with the yellow. And everybody says, well, what's the purpose of the yellow? And I'm not trying to venture off of the orange too much because you can use the orange for marks. You can use it for drills. But then now dog bombs come in and we got this yellow bumper, right? And what are you going to do with that? Well, guess what? What is going to help you see where that bumper also falls? If I'm on yellow grass and I'm throwing a yellow bumper, it's not going to work very good. But if I'm on green grass and I'm throwing a yellow bumper, it's going to pop just as much as an orange one. Mm -hmm. But it's going to be a different contrast. Always look at the picture that you're painting. Look at what your backdrop is. Look at your ground conditions. Look at look at the big scenario. And a yellow bumper can be utilized in so many different ways because of that. Um, well, you don't want a black and white one out there, but you want something that's, you know, going to kind of fade in with the cover and make the dog pay attention. That yellow bumper is going to come in handy for that one reason right there alone. It's going to help dial in those finished dogs or seasoned dogs that you're trying to advance to finish. Um, and you can obviously still run drills with a yellow bumper. There's, there's nothing that says that you can't. Um, all these bumpers you can go run drills with because it's drills. Um, you're not stretching the dog out big distances or anything like that. You're not trying to hide from them. You're not doing any of that. So a yellow or orange bumper is going to be, I mean, it's awesome. How about gray? How would you utilize gray? 
So the great bumper, and I know me and you kind of talked about this before, the great bumper for me, we get spring snowstorms up here in Wyoming. It, it just happens. When you got white ground, like we were talking a minute ago, those gray bumpers are absolutely amazing. Um, when you got a skiff of snow on the ground and it hasn't melted off, but you want to get going for the day because you've got 20 dogs to run or whatever the case may be, or you just want to go run in snow, you don't want to give up a training day, mm-hmm. that gray bumper is out there. Throwing marks with it, yeah, it's going to be a little bit tougher depending on the situation, but throwing marks with a gray bumper, if you got you know a snowy day, overcast day, that gray bumper is going to show up. Uh, when the bumper falls, obviously you're going to see it a lot easier for the dog. No different than a Canada goose laying out there in the middle of a dirt field, right? Sure. Do you so, think that gray bumper could be used similarly to the way you said sometimes you'll use the orange bumper for a 40, 50 yard mark to make sure you have the dog really, really focused? Do you think the gray bumper could be used the same way on a gray day, on a day that's a little overcast? Oh, 100%. Yeah, you bet. You bet. You you can even, even on a sunny day, that great bumper is still going to be utilized no different than an orange or anything like that. So you can definitely run the marking drills. You can go out and throw that great bumper at, you know, even 100 yards, 150 yards. It, it's, it's, it's paying attention to it, what's the sunlight what's the color of ground, what's your backdrop, and all that, all, all those kind of features. You know, that's something about dog training that it, your conditions, as they change, how you want to work your dog could change. You know, here in Arkansas, you might go from a, you know, an open pasture and it's sunny, you know, partly cloudy, and then 30 minutes later, your sun could be behind the clouds for the next hour, and you could transition to a, you know, a darker background where, you know, you're surrounded by trees, and what you want to accomplish out of that training session could completely change based on the course of an hour of the conditions that you're given. So, you know, I, I think it's cool to understand how we can use all these different colors and not just say, hey, I'm, I'm going to buy one bumper. How can I, you know, how can I maximize my training session with one bumper? Because like you said in the beginning, that dogs, they have, what is it called? Dichromatic vision. And I think the ability to give them, present them different looks. And like you've already talked about several times is, making them focus differently based on where you're at in the progression with your dog training, I think is absolutely critical. Now let's move on to yellow. Yeah. The, the yellow is, you know, like I was saying with the orange, depending on the ground conditions that you're facing, a yellow bumper and yellow grass. Yeah. That's probably not going to be your best tool because you got to be able to see where you're sending the dog to. Right. Um, see, you know, for me, I'm going to put an orange bumper out on yellow grass right now when we first kick off the year. Now, as that grass starts to green up, that yellow bumper, or if you're going into, I know some guys like to go to their city parks and places like that and run on the grass for doing drills. That yellow bumper is going to be perfect for some of those kind of situations because it's going to blend in just a little bit, but not much. It's going to be a good little tool for intro to cold blinds or you know stuff like that 
Awesome. So do you think in a lot of situations that the yellow could be used similar to the way you use a white bumper in exception to the days that you are on really yellow grass? Right, right. You could. You definitely could. Awesome. What do you think about yellow on water? Yellow on water is going to pop. I mean, that's an, that's going to be another confidence tool right there. Uh, if you're in a little sheet water pond or something like that, um, I think that yellow is really going to pop. If you're on a big lake, um, that, that yellow is going to pop. I think they're going to see it. I honestly do. Uh, just because it is closer to that white color, um, that neon yellow, I think will stand out. Uh, obviously, we haven't got to put the yellow on water here yet this year just because our water is still frozen. But as soon as we can, man, I'm excited to go out and try it. Yeah. I've had a lot of fun getting out with the different colors and working with my dog Simba. And it seems like pretty much in every situation that we've been in that he he locks onto the yellow this all the same as if he was looking at the white. Um, that's pretty much what i've taken away from it the more i've used it the more he I mean, he he's dialed into that thing i mean i've thrown him some some long i've run him on some long blinds and from what i can tell he's like we already talked about unless we're on grass that's got a yellow color to it he sees it really really well from a long long way so i think it's going to be a a great bumper for a lot of people to get out there and just give their dog a different look than white. So I want to switch gears a little bit. New retriever owners are focused on the training and fundamentals with our dogs, which is great, but often don't realize the real life situations that come up in a hunting scenario until they get in the field. And that's one great thing about your background is you are able to understand and recognize these situations and prepare your dogs accordingly. I'd like to talk through some of these scenarios and hear what you think is the best approach to take. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's start here. You're in a situation with multiple gun dogs working out of the same spread. What's the proper etiquette here for making sure all dogs are getting a fair number of reps in? Cause I'm sure we've, you've all seen it where you've got the dog, with the guy on the end that if they fall on his end, he's sending them. If they fall all the way across the spread on your side, they're sending them. So let's just talk about etiquette, running multiple dogs out of a spread for a minute. Your take. Split, split the dog into a hot, you know, split the, split the setup into 180 degrees. At 90 degrees to 45 is going to be dog one, 90 degrees going over, you know, towards 180 that's going to be dog two. Um, you pick you up three the dogs. If you got three dogs, okay, then you got to start paying attention to how many dogs are falling. When you're, say you're in Texas and you're raining out these big dollies where they're killing 15, 20 birds and making a huge got birds everywhere. It, it becomes a, hey, I'm going to pick up this one over here. You got these over here. And you need to be, you know, working with the other the other owners of their dogs and saying, Hey, which one is going to pick you? Which one, which area do you want to go work? You know, and you kind of, you kind of quarter the spread up into this is my little segment. This is yours and figure it out how you can evenly do it. Now say you're on a buddy hunt. Okay. Well on a buddy hunt, say two, three guys, four guys, Hey, you got picked up this volley. Mine's going to pick up the next. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. The thing is, is you got to make sure that the dogs are being obedient and staying, that they're not just running out there and going on gunshot and trying to catch them out of the sky, right? Because then it's no fun for nobody and it's a safety issue. So for me, the obedience side is going to be the first key on all of that is yeah, you can go pick up this group of birds. My dog's going to pick up the next group of birds. Um, and depending on how many you're shooting for today, yeah, yours might pick up six, Asher, and mine might pick up four. Okay. But my dog's still got to retrieve. Sure. And not every day are they going to go out and pick up 40, 50 birds or 20 birds, whatever the case may be. So I think at that point in time, I mean, or if you see a dog struggling and the hunt's slow, let the owner have the time to go work with that dog. Yeah. That's the main reason I asked this question is because I want people listening to understand, don't go on a hunt if you are in a situation with your buddy and maybe you do have a finished rock star gun dog and your buddy has a dog that's on his first year. If your first year dog, if it's his turn and your buddy sends his dog out there and he's struggling and it's there's not birds coming and like Kyle said, it's slow, don't send your dog out there to go get that bird i'm sure your buddies know how good your dog is give that guy a chance just remember when your dog was at that stage and give them an opportunity to to succeed before you send your dog out there to go and pick it up and then he brings his dog back with nothing so well and the other thing too on that and what you're saying too and i want to i want to go a little bit further if you don't mind absolutely but your finished dogs or even your seasoned dogs they need to learn patience they need to learn to sit there and be calm and cool. Not everything is about them. You know, it's not the selfish dog, right? Sure. Or the selfish runner. You let them young dogs get that excitement and get that driving, get that experience. Because otherwise, if they just get every retrieve taken away from them when they're young, like, on, and I'm talking about the dog on their first year. Sure. If they don't get to go get those birds, and I'm not saying they need to pick up every one. I'm saying... They need to get their fair share to understand, hey, I get to go get that. I get to go get that. I get to build the confidence and go get that. Sure. Oh, that one I don't get to go get. Okay. And so you sit there and you make them wait on one. But let them have, I'm not saying the majority, but build. You got to build that. If you start just taking away retrieve and retrieve and retrieve and they don't get it, eventually they're going to just say, hey, no, we're not going out there. Sure. And, you know, you go pick it up yourself. I'm not going. Um, I wanted to go get the last one, and you wouldn't let me. So you got to make sure you're giving them those reps to build that desire and that drive. I know a lot of dogs nowadays do have that drive, but you can also take some of that out of them, and you don't want to do that. Certainly. All right, let's say you're in this situation again, and you have a steady dog. But there's breaking dogs on the hunt. Not only do the breaking dogs create a safety issue, like you mentioned, but they also can have a negative effect on a steady dog. Let's say, for example, it's a hunt where a lot of singles and pairs are being killed. The breaking dogs are rewarded with every tree, while your dog is essentially being punished for doing what it's supposed to do. How do you address this situation? Oh, that's the worst feeling ever. I mean, at some point, if you get invited with a group or a guy says yeah you can bring your dog along and a friend of a friend and people are involved that's just hunting that's the way it's going to go you are going to run into the situation so what do you do here 
Uh, you know, in that situation, <laughs> you're going to wear it because you don't want to wear out your uh, invitation. Right. You know they're probably on the hot tub or something fancy, you know, that you just don't want to lose the, the chance of pulling the trigger, right? In that situation, I mean, in all honesty, I'm looking at the long-term effect of the hunt for my dog. Do I want to go put my dog in the truck? No. But... At the same time, I don't want to sit there and just cause me months of headache of retraining a dog because then he starts breaking or she starts breaking and going or you totally discourage him. I'm not opposed, and I've done it, believe it or not, where I was on one of those hunts, and I ended up walking back to the truck, put the dog in the truck, and came back. And everybody's like, well, what's wrong? What's wrong? Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna ruin my dog over a hunt. I'm gonna hunt and have fun. Right. I don't necessarily. You know. I know we're trying to shoot a big stop or whatever. You know. No, I'm gonna go put my dog up though. It, it's okay. You guys can have your. You know, fun. Go do your thing. Right. I'm. I, I don't like it, and the safety issue of it bothers me. But you know and i know it happens and i know there's there's rock solid finished dogs out there too that every now and then they just they lose it and they'll break too and but it's not intentional right but in in my situation i'm gonna go put the dog back on the truck and it kind of ruins the hunt for me but i'm not gonna let it ruin my dog right and you're not gonna you don't want to get in a situation where you getting a pissing match with somebody else over the way that they're working their dog, especially if it's a person that's responsible for the hunt. So I think that's the best way to just be like, all right, you know, they said to bring my dog. I don't really like the way it's going. I'll just I'm not going to be pout or be a baby. I'm just going to put my dog in the truck and I'm going to enjoy this hunt. And then when they ask, I can just be like, yeah, you know, we've just put a lot of work in and I don't, I don't want any bad habits uh, forming and maybe, Maybe that'll set a light bulb off in somebody's head to say, man, maybe, maybe I should work on this. This is kind of an issue, not just an issue with the hunt, but also a safety issue because you, you've seen it. We know it. I mean, we see it on social media every day. Breaking dogs is it's rampant. It's become a pretty bad deal. It's a bad deal. Like it's so bad where when you actually see a steady dog that sits there, for a long volley you're just kind of you're like impressed which is not the way it should be you should be like wow that's an amazing dog for sitting there but that's that's how it's become because there are so many dogs that are taken off at the shot so what do you say to the i mean you've been a guide you you've heard the deal what do you say to the people that say oh it's a god dog he needs a head start to get back we're hunting lessers we got another wave coming on their heels Listen, I'm gonna I'm gonna sum this up real easily. If I'm going on a guided hunt and the guide dog is breaking, I'm I'm gonna assume that that guide doesn't care about our safety as a client, and that is not the guide I want to be hunting with. Plain and simple, you have if if my safety is not in your concern and you're gonna allow that dog to break and the bird is worth more than the safety of my group of hunters that I'm with then I have a big problem. That's not okay. Um, if a bird becomes more important than a life, okay, then we've taken this too far. 
and and that's that's not gonna go. I, I, I'm gonna I'm, I'll probably lose it on somebody. I'll be honest because it, it's just not it's not about that. Hunting should be enjoyable, fun, and safe. And if it's not if it's not those three, then what credibility are you as an outfitter? I'll I'll call them out right now and say it because your concern should be your clients and the safety of your dog. You know, I know a lot of guides too. They, they invest a lot of money in dogs right off the bat. And then you can see the more serious ones that, you know, keep going with it every year and tune up because you see as season goes and dogs get more ramped up and excited and whatnot, but they go back and they start actually, you know, fine tuning their dogs again, you know, making sure that an accident can't happen. And, uh, I know guys that, you know, they say, well, what about staking a dog down to make sure they don't break? Well, yeah, all it is, is your pride. If you take your pride away and I'm not saying that everybody needs to go and buy a steak right now, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you're worried about the safety of your hunters or your buddies, even if you're not on a guided hunt, if you're worried about it, stake that dog down. Because you never know when that dog might step on somebody's trigger. Or if you're going behind the line as a guide and that dog takes off and jumps over a hunter trying to get over a bird and he knocks that hunter down with a gun on, you know, and safety's off, sure. what's going to happen? You know, so that breaking issue is definitely a, a full subject for me a little bit because I, I'm very passionate about it that they need to be, they need to be steady. There, there's no if or when, it's, they need to be steady. How could you encourage somebody to do something with a dog that's three, four, five, six years old? Can you do anything at that point? And if you can, I mean, obviously you can stake them down, but can you can you train steadiness after it's been that long? I personally don't believe you could, and that's just my opinion. I'm I'm sure there's some guys out there that would tell you, yeah, you can. My personal opinion is is the longer you let a habit, bad habit go on, the harder and harder it is to break. Um, you know, even coming from a professional retriever, you know, training standpoint, I'm going to, if a client calls and says, Hey, I, I've got this dog that breaks. Um, can you fix it? First question is, is how old is the dog? Second question is, is how many hunts have you been on that you've allowed this to happen? Because with repetition of doing good things, doing bad things is just as strong in a dog's sure. mind. So gotcha. when you get to that age of a four or six-year-old dog, at the same time, too, I'm looking at, okay, you just need to go stake this dog down, yeah. tie it to the blind, tie it to the boat, whatever the case may be. But do something. Because, and if you don't believe me, I mean, I personally know somebody that was killed in a hunting accident. And I'll tell you, when you say it can't happen, it can happen. And that's something that, you know, nobody should take lightly. And that's, I don't need to go further into that. But that's, uh, if you say it can't happen, it can. It's just a matter of when. Moving on, how do you determine back in hunting scenarios here we're talking about practical hunting situations here kyle fagler god's choice retrievers how do you determine whether it's too cold or too hot to take your dog hunting oh man uh, i mean it's i've spent a lot of time out there it gets freaking cold man it, I mean, it does get you, cold. and I, and i'm sure 
early in the season, September, you know, pretty hot. I mean, how do you probably not as hot as we have down here in the South, obviously, but for a guy that is in the South or a guy that is up there up North, I mean, how do you make that decision? You know, there's been days where it's seven degrees, eight degrees up here. If I'm hunting in a pit and I've got heaters going, doesn't bother me. I'll hunt the dog because if that dog's out of the blind for three minutes, four minutes, whatever the case may be, picking up birds, okay, it's a few minutes at a time, okay, that they're in those elements. But you also got to understand that when when those temperatures are getting below, say, 10 degrees, and I'm just using a number, when those temperatures start getting lower, you need to start thinking about the safety not only of yourself but the safety of your dog because, you know, anything can happen. Uh, for me personally, I've always and again, you know, I kind of take the safe route on a lot of things. Just, you know, these are investments. We put so much time and effort into these dogs. I don't want to risk anything happening to them. Right. And again, we're coming back into the pride issue of, well, yeah, my dog hunted today and it was seven degrees. Well, that's great. But how's your dog feeling at the end of the day? Um, so I've always said, if it's below 10, I'm not even going to take a dog. I'm not even going to bother taking a dog below 10 degrees. I just won't do it. Uh, above 10 degrees okay cool let's go let's hunt them but we need to be paying attention to are they staying warm are they you know is it shaking in excitement or is it that they're cold what are we doing um and each dog is different just like each human's different where frostbite might set in for you at let's just say 20 degrees it might not set in for me for you know a little bit longer whatever the case may be back and forth so and dogs are the same way i don't think there's a right number i think it comes into just having that common sense of saying hey you know we're gonna leave you know greater bow whatever back in the kennel today because we're not gonna you know risk him we'll figure this out on our own so that's uh that's kind of what i stand on that one what about when you add water to the mix? And you might have already been adding water to the mix. Um, you know, say you're hunting on the plat and it's bitter, bitter cold. I mean, do you... A lot of the guys that are hunting on the plat, you know, I mean, look at Rob Gloriata. I mean, yeah. heck of a water tower. He's up there guiding and grinding on the plat River all the time um, and kicking butt. You know, you watch Drifter run out there, but he's going back. They got heaters in the blinds. They're taking necessary precautions to take care of those dogs. Um, hats off to them for doing that. Uh, I couldn't imagine going out and running in the plat or on water when it's that cold out. Uh, I think you honestly affect the dogs in a negative way so bad because it, the hunt would be over so fast. You got to get the dog back to the truck to warm it up. Right. Uh, let's see. Let's go back. Let's back to the plat. Let's say that there's ice pushing down it or there's a pond that's got ice around it. How do you determine when to send your dog or not whenever you're dealing with ice? There's multiple equations into that one for myself. Um, I have hunted a pond once where, uh, you know, there's a little layer of ice on the, around the bank, about 10 yards off the bank, and then the rest of this pond was open. And we're like, okay, yeah, 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 we're good. We can hunt this. We can send a dog in. If anything, we can walk out there and get the dog. 
And sure enough, man, we sit, we drop a bunch of birds and send the dog. Dog goes out there, it's coming back and can't get up on the ice to get out of the water. Well, as soon as you start walking out there, the ice starts breaking. Well, it's an eight foot drop off. Next, you know, you're grabbing a boat off the bank from the other side, swimming across to get the dog. You know, so you got a horror story already happening, you know, in front of you because you thought you were okay because, hey, it's just a little sheet right there. Not very far. You know, dogs should be able to get up. You look at other ice factors where, and I'm not talking about the plat, but I've even had the same kind of experience on the plat. And thankfully, dog got up and got out, and we were fine. Uh, but looking on, say, like you got just a real thin layer of ice, and the dog goes out there and is breaking the ice as the dog goes through it. Sometimes you got to watch that too, because it'll cut the dog's legs up a little bit and then they get swollen. You got to get the baby aspirin out, all that sort of stuff. Um, if you got heavy ice and you're drilling holes and you know that ice is solid, yeah, it's no different than hunting, hunting land. You're going to send the dog out there and pick it up, whatever the case may be. Um, that you got to look at all the factors into that. Do I need a boat to get out to get the dog? Is it just, you know, sheet water or not sheet water, but water that you can wade across if something, if something going into that worst case scenario, if something went wrong, uh, what am I going to do to get the dog? Um, but like I said, the only time I've ever hunted ice where it has affected a dog besides getting in and out is that real thin layer that you get uh, early in the year, early in the fall when everything starts to ice up and dogs walk on it and it cracks and breaks. That's when you start to see dogs kind of get kind of cut up a little bit on their legs or legs swollen. And you got to kind of treat for that. But the two situations that I've seen that I feel like people should always proceed with extreme caution and, and sense are, one, when you're on rivers where there's big, actually, chunks of ice pushing down the river. Right. That's a huge red flag um, for a dog. The second one that I think's much more common for most people are obviously, like you've already said, know the depth of your water if worse comes to worse. Can you get out there if you've got waders on and get your dog? If the answer is yes okay it's it's probably okay if 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 it's only knee deep or thigh deep okay if you know that that's fine but if it's not if it is deeper and you don't know that and the pond goes or the lake or river whatever it is if it goes from ice to water that's that that's sketchy to me because if they go over that ice into the water or or skim ice get the bird and come back and it's deep and they haven't broke that ice to get to it. Now, if they're able to break the ice from the bank and go through it, okay. If they've got a path to get back, that's fine. But if they're walking on ice, then it breaks and then they get the bird and it is 10 foot deep and they've got a shelf to get back on. That's not breaking. That's a major issue. So I think keep an eye out if the pond goes from water and then there's some icy patches or icy sections or ice that they're busted through. Okay. That's fine. But if you're going from ice to water, keep that in mind. If there's ice around the bank and you don't know how deep it is, that can turn into a sketchy situation pretty fast. If your dog can't get back up on that, 
that shelf on the way back in. So I would always definitely proceed with caution if your dog's not able to break that ice from the time it hits, you know, the water's edge. That's uh, I've seen that situation get hairy more than once, and it's it's never worth it. It's always sketchier. If you're not sure how thick that ice is out there in the middle, if that dog gets out there and walks across that ice and then it thins up and he busts through and he's 40, 50 yards out there on a 12-foot deep pond, you don't have a John boat. You don't have – I mean, you might be putting yourself, your own life in danger. So just before you even shoot a bird in that situation, keep know, – know your – situation and what you're getting yourself into uh, safety wise with not only your dog but also potentially yourself before i let you go i want to ask you one last question to leave our listeners with what's the number one overall mistake that retriever owners make with their gun dogs i think the number one issue you guys get into is getting too excited and training fast and not slowing down and taking their time um, like we were talking earlier with the braking issue, getting into obedience, sit means sit, don't move. You are staying here. Um, slowing down, you know, let them be puppies, let them grow up. Everything with retriever training is a crawl, walk, run process. You've got to be able to crawl before you can walk. You're going to walk before you can run, slow down and take your time. Make it enjoyable for yourself and your dog because not every day is going to be a good day when you're training, right? But slow down with your dogs. Take your time. Put in the extra work. Um, you know, just don't get prideful trying to think that, oh, my dog can do this at six months. My dog can do this at eight months. My dog's doing this, you know, has a master title before they're two. I don't care about any of that stuff. Slow down and make the dog right take your time that's great advice Kyle where can people find you you know we're on Instagram questions or want to follow you or ask you something about retriever training or inquire about training a dog where can they find you you know we're on Instagram God's Choice Retrievers Facebook God's Choice Retrievers page also Um, our website GodsChoiceRetrievers.com and they're welcome to call. They're welcome to email, uh, ask questions. I know that's one of the things I, I like about the hunting industry is there are people out there that are willing to help and they're not looking to profit off of it. They just want to help people because they want to see others succeed. And that's kind of how we are as well. So I know I spend a lot of time on my phone each week trying to, you know, coach people, you know, through, you know, their training program or issues and we're, the door is always open. We also allow people to come and train with us, you know, throughout the week. Uh, we have an open door policy here where just bring your dog out. You're welcome to come train with us. Obviously, you know, there's times where we may do certain days sure. uh, to do like group training situations or something like that. But always try to give back and, and help people out. And they can, they can reach us on any of those platforms or they can call, call direct. So, and the numbers on the, on the, the website, excuse me. Awesome. Well, Kyle, I uh, I know you're a busy guy. I really appreciate you taking the time, especially on really short notice. I just contacted Kyle yesterday and uh, said, hey, man, can you hop on a podcast with me? And I know he's got a lot going on, and he agreed to jump on with me. So, Kyle, I really appreciate that. I've enjoyed our conversation. I think this has all been a lot of really, really good stuff that 
that some dog owners are going to be able to put in their pocket and uh, use to their advantage. So I appreciate you coming on with me, man. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you soon, buddy. Sounds good, Asher. Thank you. Okay, Kyle. See you, man. Bye. All right. Kyle Fagler, God's Choice Retrievers. That was a great conversation. You can tell in the tone of voice that Kyle is extremely passionate about what he does, and that's awesome. Uh, passion. A lot of passion, a lot of success in his kennel. So hats off to him. Check out our social media platforms. I know our hunting vlogs have slowed down, but we're going to be coming out with some off-season vlogs on YouTube. I think you guys are going to love them. Don't forget about the Instagram, the Snapchat, TikTok, Facebook group, all those resources. You can find us and stay updated with the Bomb Industries. We've got a lot of great products that have released recently. The Blue Wing Till floaters, the Widgeon floaters. And we have a lot of awesome products on the way coming this spring, summer, and into the fall. So you guys stay up with us. Hit us up if you have any questions, comments. We love hearing from you. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. We'll see you on the next one. Y'all be good. Thank you for listening to the Dive Bomb Squadcast.